So, Eamon, tell me a bit about your background and why you built Patient Empower. So, uh, my background, I'm, I'm kind of uh, a techie, no real uh, healthcare experience, so worked in a variety of R&D and, and sales roles, in first in telecommunications and then in e-commerce. Um, how I got interested in healthcare, I suppose like a lot of people, it's through personal circumstance. So a family member going through pretty, pretty difficult kind of healthcare encounter. Um, and I just kind of felt the transition from the, the hospital facility to self-managing at home just didn't exist. Um, so that was where my initial ideas and thoughts came about from it. And I had a friend working in healthcare. Um, so kind of over the course of kind of some discussions, kind of agreed to join up with him. And he was kind of a co-founder originally, and that was about six years ago. Um, so yeah, it's, we've, um, and the initial idea was very much kind of a, uh, around um, pitching into, uh, you know, kind of some initial hospitals around helping them put together kind of some frameworks and some applications to help their patients better manage at home, better transition out of acute care to, to long-term chronic disease management. Great. And um, so, so what is Patient Empower now and, and how does the system work? So Patient Empower today is um, very much a specialist chronic disease management platform in kidney disease and lung disease. Um, and, and probably, you know, we're having more traction in, in lung disease at the moment. So what it is today, um, so an example customer of ours would be NYU Langone. <clears throat> Their lung transplant center uses our platform um, in their post-discharge process. So when a patient uh, has a lung transplant, uh, before they leave the hospital, they'll be prescribed uh, an app with connected medical devices, um, and they will use that at home at regular intervals, at prescribed intervals by the, by the healthcare team. And then the healthcare team can monitor them remotely. Um, so pre-COVID-19, that would have meant that they were able to cut down the number of patient visits into the hospital by 67%. That percentage is, is much higher now, um, but allows them to safely monitor their patients from home. Um, and in fact, uh, NYU had a, had a couple of their lung transplant patients that they detected early signals uh, from the remote monitoring that they may have COVID-19 and two of them subsequently did get confirmed positive but were treated successfully and you know were intervened early and treated successfully. Um, so the connected devices um, ranges from connected spirometry, oximetry, um, blood pressure, weight and, and temperature. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, um, you're collecting a lot of advanced data you know, what types of data do you end up with in the system overall? Um, so it would be <clears throat> those kind of objective data types. So, you know, everything, you know, that the lung function, oxygen saturation, blood pressure, weight. Um, but then a lot of subjective data um, and, and geodata. So um, uh, patient reported outcome measures and scales. So things like the EQ5D. Uh, the MMRC kind of, uh, it's a, it's a scale that's used to, um, by pulmonologists for, uh, levels of breathlessness of patients. Um, but then also, um, activity data. So with the, the step counting from phones or from Fitbits, 
We pull in uh, step count data, which can be assigned. Um, we've done some interesting research looking at that as a correlation for general quality of life. Um, we also pull in data such as uh, altitude, so your oxygen saturation, the context of knowing where you're exercising and how much above sea level you are is important when, when you look at data like that. So we, we try and kind of make the data as contextual and relevant as possible. Um, and, and what's the scale of the data? Is it all U.S.? Is it international? What's the sort of... Deployment it's prob- yeah, it's it's a mix. So we've we've got customers um, in the the UK, the US, and Ireland. We're we're just starting to do some work in 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 Germany um, and and continental Europe. Um, but yeah, it's it's a real mix, kind of across across those those regions. And um, it seems well suited to helping with COVID nineteen. Have you put specific programs in place for COVID nineteen? Yeah, so in February, I suppose as we all started to kind of um, see the news and start to feel like, you know, this was becoming a, a clear and present danger to us all. Um, we, our chief scientific officer w- was the first to kind of have the idea, that, you know, that we should kind of repurpose what we had already for respiratory disease, it being a respiratory um, virus. Um, and we looked at the, the World Health Organization um final report on their mission to China and they laid out kind of clear categories of the mild to moderate disease, severe and critical um, and they had a couple of objective markers for each stage of the disease um, and oxygen saturation was one of those and that's a very objective marker that we could already um, use um, or could already kind of monitor um, with a, a Bluetooth device into our platform. So we we set about kind of, you know, creating a COVID-specific solution. We um, pitched it into the, the, the Irish Health Service. So it's a public health service system uh, predominantly here in Ireland. Um, yeah, and we were successful. So we went live with that in, in March. It was deployed across 20 hospitals. And in that um, um, uh, kind of wave of COVID-19 that we had in, in April and, and May, uh, March, April, May, a thousand patients were managed with that solution, predominantly those that were severely or critically ill and in the hospital and were discharged earlier than they would otherwise have been. So it saved significant number of bed days um, in the hospital. Um, more recently than that, we've also been deployed with um, Mount Sinai in New York. So we're part of their COVID-19 discharge and recovery program as well. So we've got a um, not the same number of patients, but uh, a lot of the, the long-term uh, patients who were in the hospital are being discharged on uh, with remote monitoring using our platform. Um, and that's kind of data fed back into the, uh, the clinical team in Mount Sinai um, for, for triage. Um, so, yeah, those, those are the kind of the, the two main areas that, that our platform has been used in COVID-19 thus far. And so changing gears a bit to the, the research use cases. I mean, have, have you thought through what kinds of research applications or talked to life sciences companies about research applications of, of the data you're collecting and the tools you've put in place? Um, not, not specifically. So we've talked with the pulmonologists in those various hospitals. So we're very much, um, so in, in Europe, we're a data processor. And in, in the case of um, the likes of Mount Sinai in the U.S., we're a um, we're a business associate, so I suppose we're, we're having discussions with 
those parties who control the data around the possibilities around the research. And there's, there's definitely an interest and an appetite around doing um, research in this area. And what we want to be um, is helping them, you know, facilitate research and, and better understanding into the disease. And, and are there certain applications you think that make sense, like trial recruitment, virtual studies, specific kinds of analyses? What, what, what have you been thinking about? Um, so we haven't looked at, at trial recruitment, but definitely virtual studies or, you know, understanding um, the, the demographics and kind of, I suppose, the longer term um, kind of patient quality of life. Um, so what we are seeing is, you know, uh, some patients, while they may get over the acute phase of COVID-19, uh, there is many patients who are left with a kind of a heavy symptom burden longer term. Um, and I think there, there's there's the need for doing kind of a lot of longer term research into those patients that don't recover from COVID-19 quickly. Interesting. Um, and, and have you seen any specific obstacles in progressing the research side of what you're doing? And, and are you doing things to move things ahead? Um, I, I suppose kind of from our perspective, you know, one of the obstacles is, you know, where where that kind of business associate or, or data processor. So we're not the, the owners of the data. So um, I suppose it's not within our remit to kind of progress it um, without the, you know, it's, it's really kind of up to the, the, the hospital systems that we're working for. So we're providing them a service for collecting that data. Um, you know, we're making ourselves available to help with that research. Um, but ultimately, in terms of progressing that, um, that's really kind of in, in their courts to, to, to progress kind of the research agenda. And, and are you working to build relationships with the patients at all for getting consent or direct interest yeah. in participating in research? So as part of that, that um, uh, kind of enrolling them into the, the platform, so we are capturing electronic consent for using the application, and then there is the capture of a secondary consent uh, for research purposes. So, um, so we're we're engaging with the patient in that regard, but again, as as kind of the processor of the data, um, in general, kind of historically in our work, we would always have gone direct to patient groups um, ourselves. So, for example, um, we haven't had the opportunity in COVID nineteen. You know, I suppose you know it's obvious there wasn't any patient groups, but I am aware now that there's patient groups being set up in online now. Um, and that's kind of those patients who are left with kind of the long, you know, talk to those patient groups that are now being created um, who are dealing with that, that longer term symptom burden. Excellent. And, and sort of what's your vision for the future, say five years in, in terms of especially patient centered research? And, you know, what, what do you think is big changes that are coming based on what you're seeing today? Um, so I think the, the one big change is remote monitoring and remote collection of data, either for care delivery or for research. It's it's arrived. You know, a lot of people were hesitant about it uh, three, four months ago. But, you know, there is no option other than to do that now. Um, so I, I think that's that's one major transformation that is is now happening. Um and I think that will that will drive a lot of efficiency in both care delivery and, and clinical research. Um, so, you know, for example, we've done a lot of um, work in validating, you know, the the, the accuracy of, of home spirometry, um, and in a lot of 
pulmonary research, you know, the the um, data points from the pulmonary function tests will be kind of the key kind of endpoints in those studies. Um, and most studies have primarily been built around clinical capture of that data. Now, with, with so many studies ground to a halt, you know, kind of, I think um, people designing studies need to think about kind of collecting that data remotely from patients in their own home. And that's going to be better for the patient as well. They can participate in clinical research much more easily if they can do it from, from inside their own home. And, and I'm curious, what, what's going to be the role of the physician in this future state? You know, will there be physicians that don't work at a center who are working in some national group of pulmonologists? Like, what will it look like? Um, so, you know, I, I think the role of the pulmonologist will still be as, as vital as ever. But, yeah, I think a lot of it could be done more, more remotely. And the one thing with this type of data is they won't need to be able to they won't have the need to see the patient as often in person, but they still will have the need to see the patient in person. So where the data trend from, say, your lung function is showing a sign of an exacerbation, they, they will want to see that patient and, and bring them in. So I think in-person visits are here to stay, but really it's about in, you know, deciding which patients you need to see and you know, deciding the priority. Um, and those that aren't as urgent where maybe their data is stable, you know, virtual visits are, are sufficient, but, but making sure that they have the telemetry, you know, the lung function data, the oxygen saturation data to really understand how they're doing. In addition to the, the quality of life questions, you know, kind of how do they feel? Um, but I, I think in person still important, um, but it's going to be more selective. Great. Well, is, is there anything else you want to talk about? I know we're sort of at the end of this uh, podcast. Um, no, I, I think, you know, it's, it's while, you know, it's obviously been kind of a really, really difficult time for, um, um, you know, kind of everyone. I think I always kind of try and look at the positive and a lot of good things in terms of how healthcare is delivered, I think is going to come from this. So I think, um, and it's going to be more patient-centered because patients, you know, I, I firmly believe will be able to get more care delivered in their own home and that has to be good for patients. Great. Uh, well, thanks, Eamon. And, uh, you know, thanks for participating with us and hopefully we'll be talking again as partners working together on some cool projects. Sounds good. Thanks, Dan.